Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hotshot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update. Hope everybody's doing good out there. Things have kind of moderated across the United States when it comes to wildfire. Oftentimes, we call this snap-tember once we hit the month of September because the busyness doesn't slow down, usually coming out of August. But people will probably be snapping this month because of the close quarters in the buggies and the wet weather and the cold, damp shirts and socks and flooded out tents. There are still fire operations taking place, a lot of them out in the Pacific Northwest, but those fires are expected to see a couple days of potential precipitation going through the weekend and into early next week. We'll cover some of those real quick before we dive into other topics. The other things we're going to talk about today, California has kind of capitulated to the insurance companies And it was kind of a checkmate with these insurance companies in California and other places, other states have started to see this as well, where these massive insurance companies say, hey, we're not going to insure in your state anymore, and specifically in places where there's wildfire. Well, the state felt like they had to do something, and so they have kind of allowed these insurance companies to basically set any rate they want. And I'm I'm kind of exaggerating with that because there are some policies that were put in place that are favoring the insurance companies for raising rates in these areas. And we'll get into the details of it later. But basically they said, hey, you can raise your rates 39%, but that can be on a floating scale. So all of your rates cumulatively can go up 39%. But if you have a house in San Francisco their rates won't go up, but a house on five acres in the hills somewhere in Northern California, there's a small cabin or whatever on it, you can raise those rates by 200% as long as the cumulative amount of your rates don't go up over 39%. Very interesting development when it comes to that. As we all know, this has been a growing issue, especially for people who live in rural communities around the western United States, and even in Florida, they started seeing this sort of thing. And basically what it's looking like is the insurance companies held the state government over a bucket and said, we're not going to insure any of your constituents unless you let us decide that we can just raise rates and raise rates phenomenally. Across the board, 40%, in some cases, 200%. And that's I think people saw this coming, you know, if you're going to, Again, I talked about it when you had these experts in Congress in springtime saying insurance companies are going to pull out and then rates are going to go up. And that's only going to fuel the cost of living and the insane prices for houses right now on top of interest rates. And ultimately, you will have a flight out of rural areas of the poorer and middle class people. And then folks with a lot of cash, wealthy individuals who can afford multiple homes will come in and scoop those houses up for cash because they will be the only ones who can afford to live there. That was very interesting testimony by all of these professors and insurance industry experts in Congress. I'd have to go back and dig up the exact link to that, but but fascinating stuff. We'll talk about that article and then also how Canada's gone all in on AI for wildfire. And... It's ironic 
because the government and these companies are heralding this achievement of putting AI sensors in all of the most remote places and having Starlink, SpaceX connectivity to all of their devices and then plugging those data points into AI machine learning computers to spit out analytics and detection protocols to discover wildfires early and then of course they can suppress those things on top of that they are developing a swarm ai technology which i can only imagine is going to lead to large drone components going to these new starts that these ai camera detection systems that are going up all over british columbia are feeding into this entire network but what i find ironic is There's millions and millions and millions of dollars going into this, and the government is promoting it. But when it comes to wildland firefighters, mental health, the housing situation, uh, if you don't know, if you're a new listener, the majority of wildland firefighters basically are homeless. Uh, A good portion of them live out of their cars most of the fire season, if not all the fire season. And it's known notoriously that wages are in the toilet, basically, and the benefits that are being offered are subpar and that that workforce is being depleted. It's also one of the deadliest years, uh, probably the deadliest year for Canadian wildland firefighters. A few months ago, they had four perish in just two weeks and then four more just last week that we talked about on the Substack. And you see a lot of letters written filled with sorrow and forgiveness and prayers and thoughts and things like this from these premiers and these politicians and bureaucrats after these sorts of things happen. But the wages and the benefits are never increased to also increase retention and recruitment, which in in the long run or even in the short run of two, three years makes the entire workforce more safe because people have seen these environments before they learn and they start building these slides of hazards in these environments that they can then pass on to the newer people coming in. But it's just new people coming in and the people at the top, the supervisors are all thinking to themselves, maybe it's time for me to kick rocks because I've been here for 20 years and nothing's nothing's improved. I'm still making the same amount of money as I did back then. So I just find it ironic that there's all of these articles and government funds going into these AI systems. Um, but when it comes to the wildfire workforce, it's basically they're letting it they're letting it rot away, which I think is it's it's not going to work in the long run. There are people out there who think, and I know I'm going on a tangent here, but. There are people out there that think that drones and AI camera systems can solve the wildfire problem and you don't really need firefighters anymore. And maybe you'll need a crew or two just to go double check it. But there's also people that are thinking 15 years, 20 years down the line that say, no, we will actually have humanoid robots for that. If you look at what Boston Dynamics has been able to do with robotics and the ability of humanoid-type robots to carry 45 pounds and do all sorts of tasks. And just yesterday, uh, Tesla had their humanoid robot show that it could manipulate its limbs and move around and balance and do these sorts of things. 
all I'm saying is there's people out there that that are developing these systems that think, oh yeah, with with swarm AI technology, AI camera detection systems, and then other robotic systems, we really just don't need uh, this what they would consider a glut of human resources in the wildfire world. Anyway, we'll go over that as well. And then there's also been uh, a kind of a short trend, but I've, I heard about it about a week ago and I didn't talk about it because I was waiting for these reports to come out. There's been multiple tree strikes in the Pacific Northwest and I wanted to cover those reports as well. One of them very seems to be very serious, uh, at least what I would consider very serious. And another one, you know, serious as well. But I thought I'd go over it because the last thing you want to see is is, is very serious injuries in the tail end of the season uh, when things are starting to slow down. But first, just a quick breakdown of what's been going on in the United States. We're down to a preparedness level three nationally, a total of 55 fires in the last 24 hours. That's not a lot at all. And there's a total of 13 teams currently on fires around the United States. In that Pacific Northwest area, they bumped down to a PL3. They had one new fire. They have 15 uncontained large fires, the largest and most, or I shouldn't say largest, but the one that is requiring the most resources and is the highest priority being the Anvil Fire run by the Great Basin Team 4, which is a Type 2 IMT. Uh, They are bringing in Southwest Team 1 which is a Type 1 team, and that team is also managing the Flat Fire. So the Anvil Fire has just kind of been chunking away. They have been building Fire Line for weeks now, it seems. It's pushed to around 22,000 acres. They can call it 16% contained at this point in time. There's 38 crews on that fire. Think about that. That That's a lot. 38 crews on the Anvil Fire, a total of nearly 1,400 firefighters altogether, eight helicopters, and a cost of $22.4 million. The other fire that's kind of just been skunking around and causing some issues here and there is the Lookout Fire, 26,000 acres-ish around there. They are saying it's 50% contained, but there are still 673 people on that fire and the most expensive in the Pacific Northwest at $77.3 million for that fire. There's a few other in the Pacific Northwest, but they're mostly getting wrapped up at this point in time. At least I would call it that. I don't know if the fire managers would publicly say that, but the containment levels are increasing, and with the weather coming in, it's probably going to put a pretty good hurt on all these. And those being the Pete's Lake Fire at 3,200 acres, the Bedrock Fire, 31,000 acres. That's been lingering on for a while. The Chilkoot Fire, right around 2,000 acres. And again, this thing's just been kind of skunking around. There's 432 people on it, eight crews, three helicopters, and a total cost of $22.3 million. A lot of these Pacific Northwest fires are in those double-digit millions at this point in time. Up in Northern California, PL3 as well, 13 new fires, no new large incidents, five teams involved up there, and it's it's the usual suspects, as it has been for the last three weeks up there. The Smith River Complex on the Six Rivers National Forest, that's being managed by California Team 4 and Northwest Team 8. And then there's another team mobilizing, which then tells you that this is going to be going on for some time. 
and that being California Team 12 is being mobilized to take over that complex. Then you have the 2023 Lightning Complex on the Six Rivers as well, and the Happy Camp Complex up there. A lot of these are anywhere between 70, 80, 90% contained. The one that isn't is the Lightning Complex at 7% contained, but again, this thing's just skunking around. Lots of money being thrown around in Northern California. Smith River, $118 million. The Lightning Complex, almost $60 million. Happy Camp, over $100 million. And the South Fork Complex at nearly $40 million. The Southern area, they've had a lot of smaller fires, especially in Mississippi, Louisiana. These places, they have been what I would consider abnormally busy, but nothing getting huge besides this Tiger Island fire in Louisiana. But other than that, not a whole lot going on down in the southern area. The southwest, a couple small fires, but again, nothing that really stands out. This Valentine fire on the Tonto, that's basically a big box burn show, and they're just filling in the dots and putting good fire on the ground is what it looks like and sounds like at 6,500 acres. There's also this prior fire down in New Mexico on the Gila That's almost 13,000 acres, but again, it's 80% contained. There's nobody on it. It's It's just there at this point in time, and it hasn't been called fully contained. There was a little ripper in western Colorado called the Border Fire, 1,200 acres. They threw about 60 people at it, and it should be pretty well wrapped up. But again, not a whole lot happening there either. In the Northern Rockies area, which we're looking at Idaho and Montana at this point in time, again, it's the usual suspects. East Fork, River Road East, and the Lupine Fire, all of them varying 20 to 75% contained, but they are not very highly staffed, and containment levels are rising at at a daily basis. Those have been expensive fires. The East Fork Fire was $30 million, about. The River Road East fire was just over $16 million. The Great Basin had a PL2, just another couple small fires. The Huntsman Fire in Nevada, under 500 acres. The Steep Creek Fire in Utah, 300 acres. The East Fire on the Boise in Idaho, 3,300 acres, but that thing's getting wrapped up. And really what it comes down to is it's been a historically slow wildfire season way, way below average on the 10-year, and you'll probably have to go back to the early 90s, maybe even the late 80s, but I think the early 90s to find a wildfire season that was slower than this year. The sad part about that is it's not on the forefront of politicians' minds, especially when it comes to this legislation that's being voted on to try to pass basically a continuation of wages so firefighters don't take a 40% pay cut September 30th. And be it that it's a slow wildfire season, it's, like I said, not at the forefront of these politicians' minds, and that kind of deters them from voting for wildfire legislation because a lot of their constituents aren't yelling and screaming about all the wildfire that's happening in their states because it's been abnormally slow. But even though it's slow, there have been some injuries and accidents that have been taking place. If you listen to the Wednesday show on Substack, For anyone who's a new listener or just listens here on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, 
every Wednesday I have a Substack-only show for the paid subscribers, which supports everything that I do. It's a very small amount for, for a monthly subscription and allows you access to all the archives. Every Wednesday podcast for Substack subscribers only. And you're instantly added to giveaways and, and, and to the donations that we do to help firefighters and their families in need and everything else. And I'm 100% ad-free, 100% sponsorship-free, and that's that's how I continue to do what I do. If you want to support that, just go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com and click on that subscribe button. What I'm saying is these last two Wednesday-only podcasts, I've been covering some of the injuries that have been taking place in the Pacific Northwest on wildfires, and a couple of them being pretty substantial. So I thought I'd cover two that popped up on my radar, and they're both felling accidents. One was the Sawyer themselves was struck, and the other one, a Swamper, was struck, and both being not, you know, not good incidents at all. The first one I'll cover took place on the Anvil fire, and this was a Sawyer who was hit by a tree during falling operations. This is a quick down and dirty report, but I have a comment on it, but it says, while cutting a tree during line construction efforts on the Anvil Fire on the Rogue River Siskiyou National Forest, that's out in Oregon, a sawyer was struck by a chunk of bark that sloughed off from a high up area in the tree. The sawyer was struck in the head and the helmet by the sloughed off bark. Short haul was initially requested and then canceled. If you don't know what that is, that is helicopter operation for them to come in and pick up that patient. The crew member was able to walk off the fire line. Assigned and local ambulance worked to transport the crew member to the hospital where the examination revealed a concussion. The crew member was released after examination. Now, some of you may think, oh, a little piece of bark came off a tree and hit you in the head. Oh, well, what, what's the big deal? These pieces of bark can weigh hundreds of pounds. Uh, off, often they're 40 pounds, 35 pounds, but if that thing falls 60 feet, 45 feet, that's moving pretty quick, and it's basically a bowling ball falling from 40 feet up in the air and hitting you in the head. I can guess that if they called for a short-haul ship, they expected that there was some sort of damage, maybe neck damage or injury to the back, or maybe the patient was unconscious, and so they called for this. But ultimately, the individual, the Sawyer on the crew, was able to at least get to a road where ambulances were able to pick them up. But nonetheless, a very scary incident. The next one took place on the Lookout Fire. That, again, is on the Willamette National Forest out in Oregon. And I made this clarification on the Substack podcast as well when I was doing this. This doesn't mean that Oregon is more dangerous than other places to work. It's just that that's where all the resources are. That you know, if if Montana was having a banging year, or Idaho or Nevada was having a busy, busy year, we'd probably be seeing injury reports coming out of those states as well. In this incident, up on the lookout fire, the swamper was struck, and this is more of a scary incident because this is one of those things where you're putting in a cut, face cut, back cut, and the tree goes opposite from where you want it to go. Like if you want it to go uphill, this tree came downhill. And when you're setting up your safety zones and your escape routes for when you're cutting a tree, that's the last thing you expect, right? You don't expect it to come back on you. So this took place with a type two initial attack, what they're calling a cohesion crew. It's what everybody in the industry knows as a throw together crew, which is the people on this crew 
don't normally work together. And this is another one of those things where I talk about safety and injuries and dealing with recruitment and retention. Like the more you can keep crews together, the safer they're going to be. The longer you have people working together, the safer they're going to be. Because with these throw-together crews, you have people that don't know each other. And they just came together for this fire. And communication isn't really developed at that point in time. And cohesion is is tough. I think that's a strange way to label these crews as a cohesion crew. Like, I would call a hotshot crew a cohesion crew. Uh, but anyway, in the industry, we call them throw-together crews. And it says it was... Formed by combining several individual fire resources off a single forest to comprise a 10 to 20 person hand crew. On this fire, the lookout fire, they were busy formulating options for cutting off a switchback in the road near the junction of Forest Service Road 705 and 695. Securing this trouble area with indirect handline would add additional containment to the fire and provide the crew a meaningful work after a lull in activity the past few shifts. So they undertook this mission because it was slow and that's that's why i talk about this stuff the last thing you want is injuries because it's slow but i understand how wildfires work and you got to keep crews busy and you got to do this and you got to do that otherwise they're going to demob you and then you don't make any money so yeah you're probably like of course i'll take that mission that's exactly what i want to do it says during the planning several hazard trees were identified along the route that needed to be removed before the crew could safely undertake the assignment as the felling operation began, a swamper assisting the faller during the saw operation was struck by the hazard tree being felled. And this was a big tree, folks. Big tree. Instead of quartering the tree uphill and to the left as intended, the tree fell 120 degrees off the intended lay, striking the swamper as they fled the stump. Yeesh. So getting into the nitty-gritty, it says two crew members off this Type 2IA throw-together crew who were certified as Faller 3s, which is the most basic level and certification of tree felling. You have uh, Faller 3, Faller 2, Faller 1. Used to be known as A, B, and C, but now it's 3, 2, 1. They were selected for the felling assignment. The intention was to provide them with training and proficiency opportunities during this slow time. Therefore... Both individuals were at the base of the snag, one as a mentor and one as a student. The crew member who would be operating the chainsaw had been working for three fire seasons and had shown proficiency at their current certification level. They were on track to becoming a faller too. Their task involved felling a 30-foot tall snag with obvious signs of rot that was located near where the handline was to be constructed. Now, they show a couple pictures of these trees. Uh, excuse me, of this tree, and it is a large diameter snag that is very, very rotten. By the looks of it, from the overhead shot, you could say, oh, I don't know, 35, 35% is compromised by rot, and then, of course, it just tapers off as it gets deeper into that wood. But the heartwood looks kind of solid. But just to throw that out there, this is a, this is a large diameter rotten snag. Continuing, it says, in addition to the second Faller 3, who had less experience and fewer seasons, was assigned as a swamper for this task. As a swamper, their role is to closely observe the Sawyer as they made each cut with the intention of learning the proper techniques. As a lot of you know, it says the swamper was also there to provide assistance 
if the Sawyer required any help. It is worth noting that the Faller and their Swamper are close friends. Okay, that's that's interesting. So they do know each other in this instance and typically work together on the same Ranger district. So maybe not same engine, but they're friends and they, they see each other on the same district. They were both very excited about being a part of the felling operation and the Swamper wanted to learn and the Sawyer wanted an opportunity to mentor their friend. Man, it makes the story even worse, to be honest with you. The work was being conducted under the supervision of their squad boss, who was multitasking by overseeing both their team and another nearby SAW team. That's totally normal. There's nothing out of the ordinary with that. If you're a squad leader, you're roaming, especially on like a prep, some sort of prep mission where you're prepping a road or prepping a switchback. Yeah, you're you're roaming around and walking back and forth and, and watching all sorts of people. That's your job. You're a supervisor of many people. It says, additionally, the squad boss was also responsible for flagging the route that the handline would follow while the diggers on the crew prepared to perform their respective roles. It says, the Sawyer then began a traditional face cut by placing their gunning cut first, followed by a sloping cut known as your face cut, and they were using a 28-inch guide bar. The gunning cut fell a few inches short of completely going through the tree. So there you go. The, the diameter of the tree is larger than 28 inches. As a result, the tip of the guide bar remained just inside the last few inches of the rotten wood on the tree's off side. And that would be the off side of from where you are cutting. So the opposite side of where the sawyer is standing. The chainsaw did not make it all the way through the tree. When it came time to execute the sloping cut, an error occurred. The sawyer inadvertently mismatched the two cuts that formed the undercut by only using the kerf that was visible to align their cuts. Now, a kerf is the slit that is cut into the tree, and sometimes people use those as uh, a way to align where all of their angle cuts are going to go. This error left a nearly three-inch bypass on the tree's offside that was obscured from sight. This bypass would ultimately change the direction of the tree's lay and disrupt the orientation of the back cut. During the cutting process, the back cut was initiated and a single wedge was placed early to prevent the guide bar from being pinched in the kerf if it closed. However, due to the misaligned cuts, the hinge on the tree stump was almost completely severed as the back cut advanced. So what we would describe that in the industry is this individual cut through all their holding wood is what happens. So if you have your face cut, if you can imagine a tree, on the front of the tree, you put a face cut. There's a flat cut and a sloping cut. A wedge pops out. Then you have the back of the tree. You do your back cut, and the hope is, the the idea is, that you can bring that cut into the tree enough to where there's some hinge wood or holding wood that then falls into the sloping cut or the pie wedge that you cut out of the front of the tree and gravity then just takes over and it hinges over on itself with that holding wood that you left in the middle. I hope that makes sense to folks there. It's not a good thing to cut through your holding wood. That's the point of that conversation. That that takes away the integrity and any sort of direction control that you have when cutting a tree down. As a result of cutting through this holding wood, the tree started to sag and pinch the guide bar, which means that the tree is now coming back on itself. Recognizing the potential danger, the Sawyer hastily instructed the Swamper to quickly leave the cutting area without providing clear direction on which way to go. 
Seconds later, the Sawyers stepped into the alternate escape path as they watched the tree begin to fall. Due in part to the Swampers' limited experience, they panicked and fled the stump without keeping their eye on the direction that the tree was falling. Without proper guidance, the Swamper instinctively chose to use the primary escape path, which, in this case, the primary escape path is opposite of where you intended the tree to fall, but now, in reality, the tree is falling into that primary escape route. It's a nightmare situation, is what it is. The hazard tree, now visibly weakened, started to teeter on the stump and now hung over the primary escape path. Several crew members who were observing the saw operation began shouting warnings to the swamper, alerting them that the tree was now falling in their direction. So what I see happening there is all of these diggers, the people who are in the dig line to construct the hand line that is going to go through where this hazard tree was, is sta- they're either standing on the road or standing far away, which often happens, and they watch the, f- they watch the felling operation happen. They start seeing this thing tip backwards and they start screaming at the swamper, hey, get the fuck out of the way. It's falling on top of you. I'm sure it was raucous. I'll tell you that much right now. The swamper only had a few moments to react as they then turned before the tree came crashing down. Thankfully, the tree missed the swamper's head by mere inches. And we're talking 32-inch diameter tree here. But even though it missed their head by inches, it struck them in the back, knocking them to the ground. Unbelievable. The initial notification of the incident was transmitted through a private crew channel. It was overheard by Division Lima because they were standing near the crew member's radio who was serving as a lookout for the entire division. Classic, classic, classic scenario right there. Division's up on the lookout point with the lookout, and they're chatting about whatever. How's your lunch? What are you going to do at the end of the season? How's the crew? And then all of a sudden, you hear what we call in the industry a squirrel channel, which is a private channel between crew to crew or crew member to crew member, and it wouldn't be heard across the fire unless you were standing next to someone on the crew that had that squirrel channel programmed into their radio. That just happened. After hearing that, this caused a series of communications on the fire's command channel involving multiple people from division, branch, the incident commander, the medical unit, as they tried to determine the exact nature of this incident. This increased radio traffic limited the ability of first responders to initiate the incident within an incident protocol, just because there was so much chatter on the radio, it sounds like, that they couldn't get their information through because there was so much back and forth on that command channel between people who weren't actually at the incident. I'm sure they are probably going to cover it here, but that's why you get on the radio and you say, cease all radio traffic. It's just that easy. Cease all radio traffic due to medical emergency. It sounds like the radio was just filled with chatter while they were trying to get this thing through. It says a short time later... An eight-line medical incident report was read over the command channel, but the channel was never cleared for emergency traffic. There you go. Exactly. Get on command. You say, clear all radio transmissions for emergency traffic. And when people hear that, they what they do is they don't talk on the radio and they turn their radio up so they can hear what's going on on the fire. This misstep resulted in additional radio traffic, which further added tension to the system and was seen as a hindrance to those providing care and working to transport the injured swamper to a higher level of care. So it sounds like this thing snowballed because people who needed to get 
information and communications across the radio struggled with that because there was conversations going on back and forth when this was all taking place. Again, you have a firefighter who was just struck by a 33-inch diameter tree, and you can't get a word across the radio. It says, despite these communication challenges, the medical response to the incident was excellent. This was partly due to the presence of several crew members certified as EMTs. Additionally, the Rapid Extraction Module Unit, the REM-7 team, was also staged nearby and managed to reach the injured patient in just 12 minutes after the initial call for assistance was made. Their prompt arrival enhanced the overall medical response to the incident. Well, that's good to hear. Upon reaching the local area hospital, x-rays and additional examination were conducted, revealing that the tree strike had dislocated the swamper's hip. So it came down on him hard to where your, your entire hip is out of socket at this point in time. Probably it hit him. From the pictures, it looked like it's even struck the pack. So it, it probably missed the head, came down the side of the body, struck the pack, and slammed all of that weight down into a hip and basically popped the hip completely out of place, which if you've ever had a hip dislocated, that is a very, very, very painful thing to happen. The medical staff promptly reset the hip and treated other minor injuries. In conclusion, in this tree strike incident, we were incredibly fortunate to have successfully avoided what could have been potentially resulting in a life-threatening or debilitating injury. Yeah, it could have been a lot worse. A lot of these situations, it, it could have been a lot worse. It says the combined effort of those involved, the appropriate medical responses, and some good luck contributed to this outcome. So I'm highlighting these things here week after week. Like I said, I usually just talk about these on the Wednesday-only podcast on Substack. If you want to listen to those and have those be available to you, you just need to go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. Click on that subscribe button and sign up for a monthly subscription. And every Wednesday, those will be made available to you at as well. And that supports everything that I do, from firefighter donations, helping out their families with GoFundMes, the giveaways, access to all the archives, everything else. I'm 100% ad-free, 100% sponsorship-free, and everything I do is supported through those subscriptions. And that's the hotshotwakeup.substack.com. And just click on that subscribe button. Up next, we're going to talk about the AI push in Canada and these insurance companies out in California and have a conversation about that. We have kind of gone long already on this segment, but I do want to get those two news topics in as well. So stay tuned for that. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the coast range, and the Sierras. So now that SpaceX has put a tremendous amount of Starlink satellites up into lower Earth orbit, you can't even consider it space, really. It is lower Earth orbit. People are starting to utilize this system and put it towards wildfire AI systems and creating detection camera systems and machine learning computers to crunch all this data and pump out analytics and predictions and all sorts of other things off of this technology. So there's this company called Rogers, and they announced that it's going to start using SpaceX's Swarm service, 
which provides low bandwidth satellite connectivity to devices in order to deploy satellite-connected sensors to better predict wildfires in remote areas of British Columbia without wireless networks. And this is from ITWorldCanada.com, a technology publication that covers this kind of stuff. It says the telco announced that it will also equip network towers with California-based Pano AI cameras that can detect smoke in up to a 20-kilometer range. The AI cameras will be located on wireless towers in the province near Fort James, Smithers, and Chetwind is, I believe, how you pronounce that one. The deployment of these technologies will be taking place in the coming weeks, the company has said. The real-time information obtained from these satellite-connected sensors and tower AI cameras will then be shared with the University of British Columbia, the BC Wildfire Service, to monitor key wildfire locations. I guarantee you this data will be shared with other private companies as well. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but talking to a lot of these folks in this tech world, um, and I have a lot of off-the-air, off-record conversations with people who are involved in these things, and... Some of them are pretty straightforward, and they say, hey, these companies, a lot of the military contractors that are coming into this space, they are offering a, a technology that could be utilized, but they're also asking as well. They want all of the data. They want to strip our systems of data, and they want to implement that data for things other than wildfire. And I'm here to tell you, these are people that are in the know. These are people that would know and have relationships with these companies. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword if you are the university or government or grant writer or whoever you are involved with these private sector military contractors. You're like, oh, well, I want the funding and I want to maybe implement these programs. But at the same time, it's very obvious to these people that wildfire isn't on the forefront of these companies' minds. They're using wildfire as a testing platform for things like AI camera systems in the war zone. So you can detect a little fire somewhere and you can send a drone there, probably a drone swarm, which is how they're setting this up in wildfire, to go drop munitions on these locations where you are picking up heat signatures and little wispy smokes where you are pulling location data off of exhaust and and maybe a a campfire from a trench somewhere in the war. So it's a double-edged sword. That's all I'm saying. It says, these new technologies will expand the reach and capabilities of our existing network of 5G sensors, giving us real-time data that can provide the foundation for an early warning system for wildfires and improve public safety. Chief Executive Officer of Pano AI out of California, her name is Sonia Kastner, added that the reach of Rogers' 5G network will allow the company's AI-powered cameras to detect, confirm, and pinpoint new fire ignitions within minutes in some of the most remote parts of British Columbia. The announcement comes as Canada experienced its worst wildfire season in recorded history, and as we talked about earlier, it's it's also the deadliest in recorded history, With more than 15.2 million hectares of land scorched, blazes are still burning in B.C. Yes, they are. Alberta, too. Alberta had a pretty big week this week, actually. All of this funding, research, and implementation of these systems are being done because of climate change, says the CEO of Rogers Telecommunication. We are proud to put our national network and technology partnerships at work to better detect fires and support Canadians and first responders. Well, then... 
Tony Staffieri of Rogers Telecommunications. You should also promote and ask for increased wages, benefits, mental health support, and housing situations for actual human wildland firefighters in Canada. I would suggest that as well if you are trying to support Canadian first responders. Just saying. The company also said it's donating satellite phones, and this will build on Rogers' existing partnership with SpaceX and Link Global, announced earlier this year to bring texting to phones in remote locations. This announcement is just one of many, as Rogers joins a host of companies that the government of Canada is having ramp-up efforts to improve wildfire response. Again, that's ironic. The government of Canada is bringing in all of these telecommunications and military contractors to develop AI robotic systems using swarm technology, but they are arguing over paying their firefighters a decent human wage. Uh, if you are surprised that these sort of things are happening, uh, I talked about it uh, almost two years ago now on the podcast and multiple times on Substack. I've written a tremendous amount of articles on drones and AI on Substack in the wildfire world uh, because they wrote about this in a policy paper a year and a half, a year and three quarters ago. Uh, The UN wildfire report talked about using these new technological systems and they've been talking about it for a while and and basically it's it's the way it's going because that's where all the money's going a tremendous amount of money is being poured into this stuff microsoft is also involved so bill gates is getting involved in this stuff it says in a blog on monday the company said it has a one-year-old collaboration with the government of alberta and elta ml an edmonton-based company to help wildfires in prone regions Through this collaboration, Alberta Wildfires Province Forest Firefighting Agency has been using Elta ML's wildfire occurrence prediction, which is powered by Microsoft Azure machine learning, to analyze tens of thousands of data points to predict the next day's risk of new wildfires in the region with enough precision to predict the time of the fire and how it will ignite. Interesting little tidbit there. A proof of concept completed by ATLA completed by Elta ML, found that the model can help Alberta wildfire optimize resources and perhaps even save money on annual operating costs. Yeah, so what that means is you can fire all of your human lookouts, you can fire all of the firefighters who patrol, because sometimes after lightning storms you send out patrols to look for fires. Basically what Microsoft AI is saying is that, hey, if you want to save a bunch of money on resources just use our ai systems and you can shit can all of your employees because you don't need human eyes anymore because we have ai eyes again this is the direction this stuff is going the x prize has their competition with drone swarms and detecting and alerting drones used for suppression They have developed this prize worth millions of dollars for the companies that can develop this sort of technology. And a lot of that is coming from the military industrial complex companies out there. It's not surprising. This is the way that it's going because that's where all the money is going. And, you know, there's some birds in my ear, little birds in my ear tweeting saying, hey, this is going this direction. And it's why they're not so concerned about a depleted human wildland firefighting workforce which we all know is happening the the numbers are diminishing because uh, 
uh, there's no support there from the government. They've basically just they've basically abandoned their employees at this point in time. But there's you know there's there's people out there in the industry who are saying that in 15 years I'm not saying this is happening tomorrow. Obviously, when I reported on this on the Substack nearly two years ago, people didn't buy it. They didn't believe it. And uh, well, here it is. Plain as day. Um, the contracts are out there. Microsoft is involved. Other telecommunication companies are involved. It's They're utilizing SpaceX swarm satellite technology and linking to 5G towers on mountaintops to coordinate all of this stuff. So just something to think about. As I've said in the past, if you want job security, start looking into some of this stuff because this is the route that it's going. I'd like to know people's thoughts on this, particularly what do you think? You know, there were a couple studies out years ago, but maybe the technology's gotten better. But there was studies out years ago saying that a human lookout can detect a fire better than a satellite-based lookout. Um, and again, this wasn't based on AI cameras on top of 5G towers on mountaintops. It was satellite imagery. So they were saying human lookouts can find new starts faster than those satellite images can. Uh, but we might be at a point where the technology has increased so much that, you know, it, it might be on par or getting better at this point in time. And that's part of the the UN paper. They say that you need to reduce the suppression force. That was one of their main points. Or at least reallocate funds from the suppression force into detection and prevention, which obviously has been happening. So that's what's going on in the drone AI world in wildfire this week. There's articles all the time saying that they're just putting more and more technology out there. Briefly, I want to cover what's going on in California. Again, as I covered in depth on the Substack, that's the hotshotwakeup.substack.com. We talked about these insurance companies pulling out of places like Utah, Colorado, Oregon, California. I honestly wouldn't be surprised to see it in Hawaii now saying that, hey, it's just too much of a burden for us to insure these houses out in the rural areas that are experiencing wildfires. Well, California cut a deal with them. And basically, they're saying, hey, you can raise rates up to 200% or more, but we have a couple policy regulations and other things that we want you to adhere to if you are going to come back in the state and start insuring. They basically beg them to come back is what it's sounding like. And this article was out of the LA Times and put together by Sam Dean. It says that the insurance commissioner of California, Ricardo Lara, announced Thursday that he struck a deal with insurance companies to encourage new coverage in the state. Insurers, Laura said, agreed to return to the high-risk fire zones in the hills and canyons of California in exchange for a number of concessions that will make it easier, in theory, for them to get higher rate increases through the state regulator more quickly. So basically, they said, if you come back and say you'll insure these homes, we'll pencil whip your rate increases. That's what it sounds like to me. The announcement comes a week after negotiations in Sacramento over a legislative response to the home insurance market fell apart. Governor Gavin Newsom also issued an executive order on Thursday afternoon commanding the insurance commissioner to take prompt regulatory action to strengthen and stabilize California's marketplace and consider whether emergency action could be necessary. So basically, this thing is spiraled out of control. 
<laughs> That's what it's looking like. The changes are slated to go into effect by the end of 2024, but the hope is that the insurers will return to writing new homeowner policies in California sooner. Lead insurers who are coming back include State Farm, USAA, and Allstate. All of those companies have requested a rate increase pending with state insurance departments and are requesting hikes of 28%, 31%, and 40% respectively. Now that last one is 39.6, but I rounded that one up. If approved, each company would be allowed to raise its total premiums. Now this is the important part. It would be allowed to raise total premiums in the state by that amount. So all of their policies gathered up together, they would be allowed to raise that amount by 40%. That's huge, huge. Like basically you should start buying insurance company stock because they're about to see a 40% windfall in profits. But it says if approved, they will be able to raise the total amount of premiums by that amount, but the rate increase can be distributed differently amongst all homeowners. So a cabin in the woods might see a 200% jump while a home in San Francisco could see little to no change. Under this new deal, insurers have agreed to return to those fire risk zones up to a certain threshold equivalent to 85% of their statewide market share. That means State Farm's California Home Insurance Branch, which covers over 21% of the state market, would be required to cover 18% of the houses in fire zones. The net effect will be that major insurers will combine to cover 85% of the customers in those areas. With California's, quote, fair plan and other high-cost insurers picking up the remaining 15. So, So let's just break this down for a second. You're still going to have to see some of these homes that the insurers won't insure be put through other smaller high-risk insurance companies with higher premiums or the California Fair Plan, which, again, is higher cost than these other insurers. So they are saying that a cabin in the woods could increase 200%, 200% on their insurance rates. If you're one of the homes that they decide not to insure... Even if they were to increase it by 200%, you got to go to these other plans, which is going to be more than 200%. You're going to see some homes, at least if they're covering 85%, you're going to see 15% of the homes in these rural areas see 300, 400, 500, 600% increases on their insurance premiums. I just want to make that clear to people. This was predicted, and I've been talking about it for a very long time, both on the podcast and Substack. This is coming. This is what they're going to do. <laughs> they were talking about it in Congress a year and a half ago. Like It's been very well known that this is the game plan. This is how it was going to go down from the beginning. In closing, it says, It's painfully clear the current system is not working properly. Today's actions are an important first step in stabilizing California's insurance market. And that's coming from the president of the Personal Insurance Federation of California. That person is saying the system is broken. Under the existing system, insurers need to apply to the Department of Insurance to raise their average rates across the state and provide reams of supporting documents to justify the price hike. The process also allows the consumer advocates to intervene along the way and serve as watchdogs. Now, with the changes... The insurance commissioner, Lara, 
says he plans to go ahead and allow insurers to use catastrophic modeling, probably created by AI self-learning computer systems. It's going to allow them to use catastrophic modeling that takes into account projected and predicted impacts of climate change and other shifting factors when asking to raise rates. He also said that insurers will be allowed to include reinsurance costs for California coverage into rate filings, though this announcement did not go into the specifics. Companies will be allowed to use these models only if they comply with their commitment to increase coverage in the state and reduce the fair plan population. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, when these wildfire risk maps came out, which it now looks like they will probably be using, they were said, and by the way, these were mandated by the executive branch of the United States, so out of the Oval Office, the office of the president, these things were mandated. They were told, you won't be using these for insurance. You can't be using these for insurance. And that was the concern. Both myself and, and on Wildfire Today, Bill Gabbert wrote about it, saying, hey, these maps are horrifically wrong. They're, they're, they're not accurate. And the concern was, and the concern I had, and I wrote about it on the Substack, is they're going to start using these wildfire risk maps to determine insurance rates on homes. Now, and, it, and it's known that they're not accurate. I'm just throwing that out there, at least by people in the wildfire industry. When people in the wildfire industry look at these things, they comment and say that this isn't right. These things aren't right. So, and again, this was a Oval Office executive branch mandate for the use of these systems. California is now saying, okay, we'll expedite your rate increases, but you can use these risk map evaluations and these risk map products that were created off of satellite images and AI computer systems to predict the future of weather to determine your future rates going forward as long as you decide to come back in the state and insure homes. I mean, it seems a, it, it, it seems a little fishy how that all went down, to be honest with you, uh, because the way these things were presented, especially in Oregon as well, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in Oregon. The state of Oregon mandated one of these things, and they pulled it off the market a couple times, and now they have public comment going on because these things were botched so badly. And I'm not saying that the people who created these things are bad or, or they did a poor job. I'm just saying that it didn't, it, it didn't, evolve the way that everyone expected it would. And the concern in Oregon was, you're going to use these flawed maps to raise my rates. And they're like, no, 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 don't worry. Don't worry, that won't happen. But now we look at California. They said the same thing. We're not going to use these AI map-created products of predictive weather and wildfire risk maps to determine insurance rates. And these things that were mandated by the executive branch, they themselves, and even the company involved, said, we're not going to use these things to uh, you know, provide data to insurance companies or, or allow them to raise rates. Well, we've come full circle. And they, the insurance company said, screw you, we're leaving the state. And California was like, wait, if you come back, you can use these risk maps to raise rates. <laughs> oh, man, I don't want to say I told you so, but holy cow. So just something to be aware of, I guess, going forward. Um, if you live in these rural areas, you should probably start looking at these wildfire risk maps to see 
what type of rating they have given your property because it seems like it's free game now. And insurance companies can come in, just plug in home addresses into these systems and be like, yeah, that's that's a risk. Your rate's going up 200%, which is what the fear was from the start. That was the concern from these advocacy groups. Myself, the late Bill Gabbard on Wildfire Today, he hammered this and said, we can't allow this to snowball because it, it'll be it'll become a problem. Well, we're there. That's, that's what we got to. And uh, am I shocked? No. You know, the way the world works, I just find it humorous because there, myself, you know, I put throughout the warnings and said, this is going to come full circle. They're going to use these things and everybody's rates are going to go up. And th- that's, that's what happened. It, it happened rather smoothly, actually. Like there really, there really wasn't much any pushback because it was also it was basically order out of chaos and the chaos was insurance companies pulled out so the government's got to create order and in order to create order they got to have the insurance companies come back but to appease the insurance companies they got to say well you can use these risk maps and ai quantified data points to determine rates if you just please 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 come back will you please come back meanwhile i'm sure first street is like awesome we just got a brand new market for our product so anyway, just something to be aware of uh, because it's coming. It's here. It's not coming. It's here. And this is the way they're moving forward with this, um, which could have been predicted and was predicted by myself and, and others. So I'm sure, as I've always said, the California model gets exported when it comes to wildfire policy. So I would not be surprised to see Oregon, Washington, Places, some places like Utah, Colorado, maybe even Montana, Idaho. We'll just have to watch and see um, where this all goes. But they are likely going to start mirroring this stuff, and it will just be exported to these other Western states as well. Again, I'd like to thank all the paid subscribers on Substack. Everything I do is 100% supported through that. No ads, no sponsorships. Everything's community-supported. If you want to support what I do, just go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com and click on that subscribe button. There should be a link below in the description as well. On that note, that's the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Remember, reach out to your homies you haven't talked to in a while. See how they're doing. Get outside. Stretch. Hydrate. Get some exercise in. Eat those quality calories because those are the ones that count. Get the rest you need because you need that to recover. But when you get up, you got to get it done. Um...